Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Congregation of the Lord, Psalm 23 is a famous passage, a passage that we all know. In fact, even people who may not be Christian know of this passage. And for that reason, I've always somewhat avoided preaching on it. I felt that no sermon could do, could do it justice. You know, many of us can recite this psalm from memory. The words of this psalm have come to mind in our most difficult and darkest days, and often also in the best of days. But when one of our new members joined our church through profession of faith, she asked me to preach on Psalm 23. And so I agreed. And as I meditated on Psalm 23, and I read commentaries and such, I realize that this psalm is tremendously beautiful, but there's also a lot more depth in it than most of us realize. And the comfort of this psalm, I believe, can be deepened through understanding this psalm more deeply, and especially the metaphor of the shepherd. And so today, bear with me as we deepen our knowledge of this psalm, and therefore, it's comfort under this theme. Blessed are those whom the good shepherd leads. And we will see, number one, the shepherd, number two, the shepherd's care, and number three, the shepherd's hope. Of course, Psalm 23 begins with the immortal words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, of course, as famous as these words are, again, I, I wonder whether we understand what's being said. Because if the Lord is my shepherd, then two significant things follow. First, if the Lord is my shepherd, then I am his sheep. Verse 1 could be translated as, as God's sheep, I lack nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but my wife and I once watched a TV show about a British farmer who bought 76 sheep. And it chronicles what it was like to begin tending sheep. What's astonishing about that is that the sheep are more inept than we would even expect. The sheep are the definition of unwise. They consistently do the wrong thing. In fact, the only thing the sheep do well is eat. And even that, even in their eating, they get themselves into trouble by overeating and such things. 
In fact, the sheep are expensive to own. They require consistent medical care, and they're defenseless against attackers. And so to say, I am God's sheep, is really to say I am a white, fluffy ball of foolishness. I am a helpless sheep. It's not a very flattering picture, as I'm sure you're aware. But of course, this isn't the whole story about sheep. So you see, if well cared for and led, sheep can actually be very useful and productive animals. They provide food. They provide material for clothing. They can even provide love. As we saw, for example, the story of David and Nathan um, in the Old Testament. But here's the thing about sheep. And here's the the thing I'm going to pursue throughout the sermon. The well-being of sheep entirely depends on who cares for the sheep. Which is why my theme is, Blessed are those whom the good shepherd leads. And the opposite could be said and has been said, unfortunate and harassed and helpless are those who don't have a shepherd or who have a bad shepherd. Jesus says that in Matthew 9, verse 36. Look what he says. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep need a shepherd, and they need a good shepherd in order to flourish. So, number two, what is a good shepherd? What do shepherds do, and why would God be compared to one? I had to do some research. We often use the term shepherd, but we actually know very little in North America about the Palestinian or Israelite shepherd. Most of us are very familiar with the British shepherd or or New Zealand or we have some in Canada as well. But shepherding in England is done very differently than it was done in Palestine. I found a 1910 issue of the magazine Scientific American in which an author had spent time with Palestinian shepherds in 1910. Why is that important? Well, Because Palestine in 1910 was largely undeveloped. And the people who were shepherds at that time largely had shepherded the same way for thousands of years. And so his perspective was very valuable. Now I'll share some quotes from that article with you, and you'll find them illuminating. Quote number one. These shepherds live entirely with their flocks. Night and day their sheep and goats are their sole friends and companions. So a Palestinian shepherd lives with his flock 24-7. He sleeps with the sheep. Very important. Again, not very different than a British shepherd. Number two, the shepherds of the Holy Land are men of some initiative and intelligence. Their business is honorable yet dangerous. For this latter reason, many of them carry heavy wooden clubs and slings. This is the rod and staff. We'll come to that. With these weapons, the shepherd protects his flock from wild beasts, hyenas, leopards, panthers, and wolves. With the result that even today, many a good shepherd is called to lay down his life for the sheep. 
This is why in John 10, Jesus says repeatedly that he lays down his life for the sheep. Because being a shepherd was dangerous. Very dangerous. Wealth in the, in the Middle East has always been calculated in terms of how many animals someone owns. And so protecting your wealth is obviously very important. Now listen, another quote. It would be impossible to drive the flocks from place to place unless dogs were employed. There are no sheepdogs in eastern countries. Okay, so get rid of that image. The sh- what is the sh- Instead, the shepherd goes on in front, the sheep following behind. And so one of the shepherd's main duties is to lead the sheep from pasture to pasture. And they follow his voice. So Jesus says, the sheep know my voice. And of course, in Judea, where David grew up, finding good pasture was not easy. It's not like Owen Sound or Ontario. There's not fields of green everywhere. There's only a limited number of those fields. Most sheep feed on, on tufts of grass that grow between the rocks. And so you're constantly moving. Now, one last quote. I do not remember ever to have seen in the east a flock of sheep without a shepherd. Ever. You see that? On some high hill, the shepherd, you meet the shepherd, sleepless, farsighted, weather-beaten, armed, leaning on a staff, looking over his scattered sheep, every one of them on his heart, you understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front in his people's history, why he gave his name to their king, why Christ took him as the type of self-sacrifice. Suddenly we begin to realize that when Jesus called him himself a shepherd, the good shepherd, there's a lot more to his statement than we would think. And so this goes back to the key point. Sheep cannot live or flourish without a shepherd or even a good shepherd. Sheep need a certain kind of shepherd to flourish and produce and be productive. And the big idea of Psalm 23 is that human beings are exactly the same. Human beings are like sheep and they can't survive without a shepherd. Without constant care from the shepherd, they cannot flourish. And even better, the good life is not possible without the shepherd. That's why Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am. I'm the one who provides the care that you need as a sheep. No one else. And then Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Even though sheep of mediocre shepherds may lack food, they may lack water at times, if the Lord is your shepherd, you lack nothing. Which leads us to the second point, the shepherd's care. Because Psalm 23 is a carefully written description of the blessings the sheep experience under the good shepherd. Right, we have verse 2. The shepherd makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, apparently, sheep don't lie down if they're hungry or stressed. They also won't drink from water that's foaming or fast-moving. Again, I'm somewhat dependent on the internet here, so bear with me. But apparently this is the case. 
And hence, this is the next statement. He leads me beside the still waters. For sheep to eat and drink, this is what the shepherd must do for them. A wise shepherd will lead his flock to abundant... A wise shepherd will walk miles and miles and miles to find his sheep good pasture. And again, God is the same. God is leading you to quiet pastures and quiet streams, abundant and verdant. That is what he wants to do. God does not want to lead you to a place of famine and starvation. We think that God only sends us hardship. And many of, us, many of you will say, why is my life so full of grief and stress and pain and loss if God says that he'll lead me to green pastures and still waters? Why is that the case? Here's something about Psalm 23 that you need to realize. What David is telling you is that Jesus himself is the green pasture. Now, of course, Jesus grants us abundance of wealth and such in this life, but the point is that he himself, if you have him, you don't even need anything else. He is the still waters. His word, his worship, or times of prayer. These are the, the still moments beside the streams of water. Right? And hence the Lord's Supper. You eat and drink Jesus. And that's where you find your true rest. And so that even when you live in a time of famine, you can be at peace in your heart because you're feeding spiritually on the shepherd's grass. Which then, of course, verse 3, he, refresh, he restores my soul. Again, right? The green pasture, the still waters restore our soul. Many of us know that there's a kind of refreshment that's only possible after a worship service or reading our Bible. A particularly good time of personal devotions where you're really dwelling, or maybe a hymn in church that touches your heart. There's a kind of refreshment by being in Christ that does something down here that nothing else can. This world is so full of noise and anger and greed and striving. The coming into being still before the Lord provides something. Even secular people talk about the need for meditation. They know that something's needed down here. And again, I want to challenge something here. We think vacations give us rest, and we do need them. We need to rest our minds, we need to rest our bodies. But even a vacation or, or you know, going to, down south to the Caribbean, this stuff doesn't rest the soul necessarily. And if you go down there and you don't take the time to get to know God more, you're not going to be fully at rest. Or watching TV or Netflix. Netflix doesn't feed your soul. It probably corrodes it. True rest and peace is experienced when you spend time with Jesus Christ. He is the restoration of your soul. And if your soul is restored, then other rests will follow. That's why we worship every Sunday. To begin the week with rest. So that the rest of the week, the rest we gain on Sunday can power us through the noise of the week. 
Our life is so full of emotional trauma and guilt and pain. Jesus is the only one who can clean our hearts of that stuff. Now there's a little more. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Or in the New King James, it says, He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Curious fact of sheep. When a sheep strays and doesn't want to walk the path that the shepherd has set out, that usually means that the sheep is sick. In fact, a few years ago, a rogue sheep, which was sick, led 400 sheep over a cliff to their death because the other sheep followed the sick sheep away from the path of the shepherd and the shepherd couldn't stop them in time and it led to disaster. The fact is that you and I are a lot like that. The shepherd is leading us on the path of righteousness and holiness and we're going, well, we don't really want that. We get sick somehow and we decide to stray off the path of the Lord and it leads to disaster and other people might follow us too. But the good shepherd only leads you on a righteous path, never otherwise. And again, he leads you on that path for his name's sake. You don't walk in righteousness because you're such a genius. The path of righteousness is laid out for you. He points you to it. He gives you the leadership for you to walk on that path and the spirit to move your heart to want to walk on that path. Jesus is never leading you to evil. If you feel the need to stray off the path of righteousness, that's my heart and it's pride is talking. Of course, I remember personally countless instances when I tried to stray off the path of righteousness. Usually be able to wander a bit. Usually in my own life, it's friends and family and the church that served as the rod and the staff to pull me back. I'm sure many of us have similar stories. The fact is that the Did I come back to the church because I was so smart? No. I came back because Jesus sent someone to use the staff to pull me back. Church discipline, we would call it. This is why the the shepherd carries the staff and the rod. And part of it is to help the sheep get back in line. Not for just so that they can be obedient, but because the path of righteousness is the good path of, of Green grass and still waters. There's nothing good off the path of righteousness. Now, what's curious is that the good shepherd keeps us safe too with his rod and staff. But that doesn't mean that the sheep never face danger. The path of righteousness, in fact, is somewhat dangerous. Look at verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why do I fear no evil? For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What does this mean? Well, one of the things in Palestine is that the land is very hilly and craggy and there's lots of canyons. And often to get from one place of feeding to another, you'd have to walk through dark canyons, a perfect place for an ambush. 
Now, sheep, of course, intuitively know that the canyon is a dangerous place and they don't want to walk into it. But they will with the right shepherd. If they know that the shepherd can protect them as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, then they will go. Here, let me comment on something here. Again, the Christian life is not about avoiding risk and danger. And many of us think it is. Sometimes we need to risk a great deal for Jesus, in fact, and leave our place of safety. But if you're doing it for Jesus, if it's part of his path of righteousness, then you can take comfort in the fact that even though you take a risk, he is there to protect you as you do. And how does the sheep protect us anyway? Well, it says here that he has a rod and a staff. Well, the rod and the staff are, most people think there's a long staff, which was familiar to us, but the rod is like a thick wooden club. And at least in 1910, it was studded with nails. And so the comfort of the shepherd is that he carries a big stick. He's stronger than whatever attacks you. In fact, in ancient Palestine, a good shepherd was known as a stout warrior. This is why David, when he came to to fight Goliath, he was not untrained. When David came to fight Goliath, he had been training for years as a shepherd. That's why he he says to Saul, you know, I, I fought a lion. I've defeated wild animals before. I'm ready to fight. Shepherding was the best training for war there was. And this psalm is saying that God, and, and we would then move to Jesus, is a warrior. We have to think of Jesus as Mr. Nice Guy. He's loving and kind, and he's only a friend to those who are kind of weak and wimpy. But Jesus is also mighty and firm, and he's a resolute punisher of evil. We feel safe when we face risk in the shadow of death because our Savior has a bigger club than whoever comes at us in that ravine. That's part of our comfort in this life. That Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God because he's the biggest stick in the room. Nothing can stop us from, from, from nothing can separate us from him. Now, The woman who asked me to preach this sermon, she lived in the homeless shelter system in Brampton and Toronto for 10 years before she came to our church. She lived in shelters, other times in homes of people. A few occasions she even slept on the streets. She lived in the valley of the shadow of death for 10 years. An inherently risky life where the next meal was not guaranteed. And yet the way she described it, Jesus protected her again and again and again. She does not believe that she was kept safe because of her street smarts. If you don't believe Jesus can protect you in the valley of the shadow of death, I beg you to go talk to this woman. Because he did for long periods of time. 
There's no danger capable of defeating Christ. There's no evil worth fearing if Jesus is on your side. And again, verse 7, he goes further. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What? So even when I'm sitting with my enemies surrounding me, there's this bounteous table. Why? Because the shepherd is near. Many times this new member ate at shelters and soup kitchens or food banks. Many times she had to eat in the presence of people she knew were dangerous. And yet in Jesus Christ, she always had food. She didn't know a lot about Jesus, but she knew enough to know that he was there. And in 10 years, she never starved. Never. You think about that? Even in the presence of enemies, a table was always spread. Of course, he was the bounteous table. The green pasture, the still pool. And then, of course, we have, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Even in the, in the presence of danger, I have an abundance because I have my shepherd. Jesus is what's good in this life. Even if we lose our husband to divorce, even if our children move away, our mental health is a constant struggle. Even if we have no money and we live in a homeless shelter, even if we have nothing or no one, if you have Christ, you have a bounteous table, an overflowing cup. Of course, many of us to hear today think that's a bit fantastical, perhaps. Many of us genuinely think we couldn't live without our spouse or our money or our children or even our mental health. We cling to these things as a person clings to a, a drowning life raft. I think often our actual Psalm 23 of the Canadian Reformed North American Christian goes something like this. My way of life, my possessions, my family or community is my shepherd. With them I have everything I need. With my business I have everything I need. Psalm 23 is not about that, is it? And if you had to write a Psalm 23 about your idols, what would, it, what, would, what would the green pasture really be? Would your idol be able to be described as a still water in a green pasture? Could I look at my business as, my, as still waters? Or my career, or even my family, or my wife, or my children, my husband, my money? Does your money in the bank be described as a green pasture? Does it satisfy your soul? No. Psalm 23 says that none of those things truly restore the soul. No, only the good shepherd restores the soul and fills the soul and is a bounteous feast even in the midst of nothing. David isn't the only witness to this. I've seen this in people who've come to Brampton who spent their whole lives living apart from God and suddenly they find Jesus Christ and it doesn't matter what else has happened in their life. They've got him. That's what's good. That's what's everything. They don't need anything else. Often one of the struggles is convincing people to keep working 
They're so consumed with Jesus. Why even invest anything in this life? Oh, my job's in the way. No, no. Don't. Can you imagine thinking that way? Now, one more comment in our second point here. Today we have the ordination of three elders. Three shepherds, the Bible describes them. How do we think about shepherds in light of Psalm 23? I would argue that the most important principle in all of shepherding comes in John 10, and it's this. I am the good shepherd. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, period. Which then teaches us two things. Any shepherd of the church serves at the pleasure of the great shepherd, and this ought to be, produce immense humility in those who would serve. And ultimately, if Jesus is the good shepherd, then the task of the shepherds, the under-shepherds, is to direct the attention of the flock beyond themselves to Jesus Christ, the good shepherd alone. The job of the under-shepherds is to sacrifice themselves just as Jesus sacrificed himself for the sake of the sheep. And the elder and the the shepherd ought to realize that the task of being an elder is actually God's gift to him. He is not God's gift to the church. God has decided to give the elders of this church an eternal job. We often say that all jobs are the same and that there's some truth to that. Every occupation that we have has honor. Selling landscape stone, building houses, milking cows, these things of great honor. But the shepherding of souls, there's a little bit more to it. There's, there's a calling there that's a little more eternal. Everything else we built is, is temporary. But the work we do here in the church is eternal. And when the shepherd decides that he will, he's going to invite you to help participate in his kingdom building work, it is an immense thing. Men, elders, you will meet people in heaven whom do you, God used you to reach. Someday you will be in heaven and you will meet someone who, and they will come to you and they will say, do you remember that time you disciplined me? I needed that. I came back because of what you said. And to be used by God for something that eternal. But a soul is in heaven because God used you as part of his way of reaching someone. There's nothing bigger than that. Not that we need to think of things of higher or lower, but there's something tremendous there. Which therefore means that the task is not for those who do it grudgingly. The task is for those who want to wash the feet of the congregation like Jesus washed my feet. God does not need you, but he chooses to use you. Weigh that. Think about it. Secondly, this points to the second thing. It's true that we're not worthy of this task, and there's no doubt about that. And yet, 
Jesus appoints us to this task and therefore will equip us with what we need. That's how any person can be a shepherd. The only way a person can do this task is if they're filled with the good shepherd themselves. There's something counterintuitive about this. I once got an illustration from Dr. Den Hollander that explained this. He said, look, imagine you're on an aircraft and the aircraft loses cabin pressure. Of course, the oxygen masks come down. And for each seat, there's one oxygen mask. Now, if you're on an airplane and you've got children with you, what do the stewardesses say? They say, put the mask on yourself, then on your children. And if it's true that Jesus is the good shepherd, then that means that I can't do his task if I'm not filled with the good shepherd, which means that when it comes to the affairs of the church, I put my oxygen mask on before I give Jesus. You see? I need to be filled and drinking Jesus if I'm possibly ever going to help other people put on the oxygen mask of Jesus too. If I'm starving and out of oxygen, I can't help anyone. You want to be a shepherd in the good shepherd's kingdom. You need to know the good shepherd inside and out. And he needs to know you. That means that this, the word of God, needs to be big in your life. You can't depend on others for their... You can't depend on the pastor to know the Bible. You have to know it. What if the pastor is wrong? Then it's the shepherd's job to correct him. It's very frustrating to be a pastor and the shepherd's are unable to correct the pastor when he needs it. Drink from the oxygen mask of Jesus so that you can be men who can feed the congregation. Of course, he stands as the example of what a shepherd ought to be. He washes feet, therefore we should wash feet. To be a shepherd is to be like Jesus. And of course, this is impossible, but yet through Jesus, it becomes possible. It's a high calling, yet we're filled with what we need to do it. Now let's go to our last point, the shepherd's hope. The hope of Psalm 23 for everyone, including the under-shepherd, is this. Despite the fact that I am a wandering, weak sheep, incapable of the tasks God gives me in this life, despite all of my weakness, the good shepherd is faithful and loving nonetheless. And he never gives up on his sheep, no matter how many times they fall. The good shepherd loves you so much that he's talking to you right now. He's not just the shepherd, he's your shepherd, my shepherd. You see that line? He belongs to us, we belong to him, we're owned by him. He doesn't just abandon those sheep that he's purchased with blood. What does the Heidelberg Catechism say? What is my only comfort in life and death? Well, that I belong to my faithful shepherd, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not like the shepherds we've seen. His heart beats with compassion and love for his own he has an eye. He's always watching the flock. He doesn't miss anything. He's faithful. He has strength to deliver us from every calamity. He has the tenderness of a shepherd. It says in Isaiah 40 that the shepherd picks up the sheep and carries the sheep that are too weak to walk. 
There's no saint so weak he won't lead, no soul so faint he won't give it rest. I once heard a vivid illustration of what it means to say that he is my shepherd. And it goes like this. Some time ago, a man was taking holiday in a rural district in the country, and he came across a little boy minding his sheep. The stranger asked this little boy, he said, do you, do you know the 23rd Psalm, boy? The little boy said, no. The gentleman said to him, I'll teach you the first sentence. The Lord is my shepherd. The boy repeated the words. And then the man said, now repeat each word again and count a finger as you do so. And do it like this, right? The Lord is my shepherd. And then he said, when you get to the last, you then cling to the fourth finger. And always remember that it's not just that the Lord is a shepherd, the, the Lord is my shepherd. The stranger went on his way, and the boy told his parents about this strange lesson. During the following winter, the snow fell heavily in the district. One day, the boy and the sheep were missed. They were discovered in a deep drift. After the sheep had been dug out, the search party came upon the body of the boy. And his left fourth finger was grasped in his right hand. You see, that is Psalm 23. There's lots of stuff said in Psalm 23. There's lots of information we can learn about it. But in, in a nutshell, the Lord is my shepherd. And those who know that can say the final words, which go like this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you can grab that finger and believe that this is the case, then those words are yours. For blessed are those whom the good shepherd leads. Amen.